Welcome to Ambassador Lounge Podcast. This is episode 1, November 18, 2019. Your hosts for today are Aryan, Ben, and Rolf. Hi, I'm Aryan Schwartz. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, and work as a lead platform engineer at Digio while also representing our sister brand CMD Solutions in the Ambassador Program. Hi, my name is Ben Brits. I am based in Belgium and I work as Principal AWS Technologist at Cloudar. Hello, my name is Rolf Koski. I am AWS Hero and Partner Ambassador. I am based in Finland and working as a Senior Cloud Advisor and CTO at Cybercom AWS Business Group. As this is our first podcast, we figured it's probably a good idea to explain what the Ambassador Program that we're all part of is actually is. So the Ambassador Program, or APN Ambassador Program, is from the AWS Partner Network, and the Ambassador Program in there is for consultancy partners. Specifically, it's for people at those partners who are publicly speaking, writing, or doing similar things, and are generally considered knowledgeable or experts in their fields. Sometimes we get together when AWS invites us to to events, but aside from that, we basically see it as a group to talk with people who deal with the same problems we have. therefore have the same experiences, but in very different contexts. At least, that's how I usually see it. Um, This does mean that while AWS shows up in these titles, um, we don't actually work for AWS, which also means that everything we say doesn't have to follow the usual AWS rules of engagement. In other words, we can say it when something isn't quite as good as as we'd like it to be. Yeah, I think it's... um... Also a very interesting program, uh, especially because you get a lot of different styles of people who are um, active in it. Uh, where you, for example, blog a lot. Um, I uh, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, and there are people that are uh, write a lot of blog posts, and you can you can see all those kind of different things uh, interacting with each other. Um, we are sharing um, not only things to the uh, to the whole world, but also between ambassadors um, to point out what we're working on. And it's really interesting to see all the all the different things people are trying and are um, their opinions about everything. Yeah, and also one one thing to note probably is that uh, we are we are a global community as well. So even re- in regards of the doing this podcast, it's like uh, we are located. This group of people is located in three different time zone zones. Uh, two of us is in, in Europe and one in Pacific area. So yeah, that's also a very interesting aspect of this program that uh, getting to work with uh, kind of the brightest minds in the industry, but coming from from very various cultural backgrounds in very various places in the globe. Yeah, definitely. I- Personally, always really enjoyed the fact that even though it meant that today I had to get up way too early for this podcast, um, it does mean that we get to see what everybody does around the world and the kinds of problems that are so very different, um, especially when you didn't compare like a Europe to even Australia, which is then where I am, because everything is so very different. Yeah, and it's also like uh, every every time we meet in person, it's like uh, also one, like the in- most interesting discussions is about like uh, understanding that how how the local markets are very very different in other places of the world, and how there are kind of these 
microeconomic movements, uh, which differ actually quite a lot in uh, in how IT and IT consultancies work in different parts of the world. But yeah, maybe that also brings us uh, kind of naturally to the um, why we decided to have this podcast and or how do how did we came about with the idea and there there Aryan had like a big influence in that so maybe you'd like to share a little bit of your thoughts that how did this originally came to be of course so my idea for the podcast was when um, it came shortly after we had one of those uh, meetings where we all came together uh, and I really enjoyed always uh, discussions there um, as we've mentioned before all the different insights and just being able to talk to people and listen to conversations from people between very different backgrounds and how they think about things but still all the kind of things that I personally am very interested in so I wanted more of that and I figured one way we could do that is by having a podcast and that would in my case solve two problems um, it would give me a place where I can talk um, it's not that I can't talk to people here of course I've got plenty of smart colleagues as we all do but it will also give me a chance even when I'm not involved to listen to other people talk which then means basically how this podcast is set up as in there's no set group of hosts so today it's the three of us and maybe for the next episode it is one of us and two or three others or it will be none of us at all and it will be a completely different group this is a bit different from most podcasts that have just a set group of hosts so it will be a bit of a seeing how well it works but yeah that was basically my idea for podcast and we can talk about anything we want in it um, obviously adverse related and bring in guests if we want to outside from outside of the program maybe we can we can start with that uh, this is a bit of a special episode this is the first one uh, but there have been new releases this week for example, um, one of the big ones was the new way to buy reserved instances or to not buy reserved instances and the savings plan, which I think is very in interesting and I assume you um, you both also have thoughts about. Yeah, it was uh, in my mind that was uh, one of the releases or I don't know if it's fair fair to call it a feature release, but I guess from AWS perspective, it was announced under that banner, but let's call it a feature for 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 argument's sake. So in, in my mind, that was a kind of a fundamental change how you as a uh, consumer of AWS resources can uh, be more cost-efficient cost in the way that how do you acquire the compute resources. Um, the reserved instances have been around for forever and a few other services as well, namely like uh, the RDS, for example, has had that possibility to purchase reser reservations for ages already. But uh, how this kind of uh, changed the game 
was that you are committing yourself to more like a consumption baseline in a cost rather than a specific type of resource that you're consuming. So it kind of approaches the whole problem or the whole issue from totally different perspective. And uh, I already wrote down some short notes on to my personal blog about about this uh, launch. But to be honest, I have not yet had the time to do kind of a comparison in how that would go in price to price comparison, just like purchasing reserved instances and doing similar kind of savings plan with this uh, new feature. In my mind, this was like a good announcement, which enables the usage of such features for also the other organizations who are not entitled to EDPs or these enterprise discount plans, uh, which kind of the big boys or the big customers are entitled to. But yeah, remains to be seen. We need to do some crunching numbers and calculations that how how it stacks up against uh, the previous way of doing things. Yeah, what I also found really interesting about it is that it's now also applicable applicable for uh, Fargate, uh, which means that one of the big reasons now for some of our clients to stick with ECS on EC2 is that they could apply reserved instances to that and save some money that way on compute costs. Uh, But now that this works on Fargate too, there's uh, one one less reason uh, to stay on those instances. Uh, So that's really nice that we can move on the stack with those things. Yeah, I agree. The the Fargate thing was like uh, probably probably the biggest part of this, especially for anyone being on containerized workloads. So now you can like get get a benefit, cost benefit there there as well. Yeah, definitely the Fargate thing is big. Um, the other part I noticed with it though is that uh, well, with reserved instances, for you had to differentiate between Windows and Linux workloads. Now they also count as the same and you can switch between them. Yeah, also to be honest, like there there was like a lot of uh, price difference. If you, if you, everyone can like take a look at the reserved instance pricings uh, on AWS pages. And uh, if you are taking Windows instance and doing a one-year no-upfront commitment to it, your cost-benefit for using reserved instances was somewhere in the ballpark of maybe 11% or something like that. And if you compare that to a cost-benefit of a reserved instance on open-source Linux operating system, the cost-benefit was far more, like in 30-something percent. But... Uh, Naturally, this in in big part, big part this comes from uh, the cost of the operating system license, which does not scale. So if you take a small uh, instance type, it's still the same operating system that it needs to be there. So you really can't get a, like a, too much of a cost benefit from running a commercial operating system. So this is probably one aspect that I would need to take a look at crunch, crunching the numbers that how this stacks up with the, the new way versus the old way. Because in the old way, if you were like doing reserved instances, depending on the instance family and the operating system, and even to some extent, the region that where you were purchasing the RIs, uh, there was a lot of 
variance in the discount percentage. So uh, because of the model in the savings plan is directed in not factoring in the instance family type or not factoring in some other functions there, this might or might not end up in a situation where you can get lesser or more benefit using savings plan or using RIs depending on your use case. But on that note, I would also like to state that uh, using savings plan seems really easy and straightforward way to use to get some initial cost benefits. Whereas uh, reserving RIs can be a really tedious and time consuming process. So if you factor in just the plain uh, cost work that you need to do if you are managing RIs that can like tilt the scales in, in benefit of the using the savings plans even if you can't get the most, uh, most out of your savings calculation comparing to just purchasing RIs. Yeah, and, and not only in the short term where you have to calculate it, but also in the long term where with uh, arise, um, even with convertible uh, arise, uh, switching to another instance type or um, is is always some kind of work and calculations, and you maybe have to buy some extra arise to make the conversion work. Whereas with savings plan, you will just be able to change that type and and keep uh, keep working without having to think about it. Yeah, naturally, yeah, yeah and one big big thing here is as well that now when we are actually closing the reinvent in less than a month away already i'm anticipating that there's going to be some new generation launches for instance types there as well so using the sa savings plans gives you the ability to do those generation upgrades in your infrastructure uh, start using more efficient instances and uh, instances that cost less and you don't need to like factor in that hey i've like committed myself to these ris for one year or three years just like one month before that they were launched so this is also something that everyone should understand that what's the kind of what's the strength in the new and maybe still continuing on that that thing that uh, one thing that i would like everyone to understand that using either ris or uh, the the savings plans is simply optimizing the cost from uh, that how much you are paying for a capacity point of view but that doesn't mean that you are consuming to the correct things so even though this is a great tool of making your making your cost probably a little bit less with an easy to use tool the part where the actual cost savings or is understanding and optimizing the actual architecture, then you then you are actually making sure that you are using uh, using your money to the correct places, and uh, it's it's always nice not to overpay, but uh, this isn't like the all commanding tool for managing your costs. You need to also understand that you are doing right things with right resources. Yes, but. I also think that that is something that we can see coming in the future in the future uh, with saving savings plans whereas now it's only two services that are uh, uh, covered by that uh, I hope that they expand that and that we can again see things like uh, RDS and Lambda and Kinesis and all those kind of different services be uh, also part of that savings plan yeah I, I guess that RDS is already 
covered by this, but yeah, lambdas for sure. I anticipate that a great deal. And on that note, I would also like to state that there are a lot of things that should be and could be simplified in AWS billing, especially like what, when it comes to networking costs. So maybe maybe if I would have one thing in my wish list uh, that should be in the savings plans in the future would be like uh, the, the network components. Yeah, as you said, even just some clarity around that would already help a lot. Instead of curiosity, um, how just thinking how you go about um, RIs and now hopefully in the future savings plans, it is AWS tends to give us an option between one and three years. Do you usually go for the one year, um, assuming that there will be cost reductions and new instance types coming, or do you sometimes still recommend going for like a three-year reservation? Yeah, that's a, also that's an interesting question, and I that is a thing that where I've uh, noticed that depending that to where you are located in the world, the approach to this seems to vary a great deal, as we all work for consultancy companies and uh, not kind of the direct end customers of AWS. Some of the consultancies tend to also do this, that they buy capacity from AWS and then resell that capacity. And the consultancy then commits to the RIs and uh, tries to make a little bit more margin from that reselling part. But uh, that's not... From where I'm from, that's not really usually the case that how, how we do it here up in the north. But the customers tend to be like individual entities. So in that regard, in the old world, well, when talking about RIs, my advice has always been that if you don't have really specific circumstances and a really special case, don't go for the three-year RIs because three years in IT is like almost a forever. And as I mentioned, uh, reInvent coming and probably new generations of EC2 instance types coming along once again. If you're just committed three years to something that is probably not, not with as good performance as the new one and it probably is going to end up costing more than the new one, I always advise that commitment should be like one year only. Uh, if you're really big customers, the, the one thing that you, you could do with RIs in the past was that you kind of had this annual clock cycle of purchasing RIs. So every month you would purchase a certain amount of RIs and when you've done this for a year, you end up in a situation where you can like scale, either scale up or scale down based on your requirements. But even in that case, you needed to have like certain scales to be able to do that. And also uh, you would need to like limit your options within few instance family types to make that worthwhile. Or you would be like just scattering your effort all over the place because there are so many instance family types already. Granted that it's only in most cases, it's only few that are usable and those few other ones are like really specific use cases where you would want to use those. Do you see that advice changing now with the savings plans where, uh, for example, now you can say, uh, let's buy for, for example, for 40% of our workloads uh, for three years and then for 30% uh, 
buy in uh, one year increments. So you still have that um, yearly cycle where you can evaluate, are we um, still using everything that, that we expected to use? Um, but for the, the longer term, where you're pretty sure that you will still always have some compute, uh, that you can uh, take advantage of that extra savings that uh, a three years um, savings plan will give you. I don't see that many cases where the three-year plan is viable, or maybe this is just my point of view. I certainly can accept that other people might think totally differently, but like in three years, you might end up like being run over by two generation updates for for something already, like going to, for example, buying three-year uh, three-year commitments only for T2s might end up that year when the, that term ends. There are like T4s or even T5s already out there, so that might hit you really, really hard. And the then the other thing is that you get kind of a, in in our eyes, you would get the max maxed out benefits if you would pay all upfront. And that's kind of the whole another part of the discussion that the, the all upfront and the most discount from that is kind of what I felt that if you take that option, you always lose the visibility that how much the infrastructure is actually costing you. If you are not like having some kind of uh, calculation or Excel sheet on the side that this is kind of my running cost for th for this month, and what could then end up happening that because uh, you are not understanding that what your monthly cost is that you don't understand that uh, like after two years you you simply could have forgotten already that <laughs> yeah, I made this three-year investment on certain research instance types. And then you just end up in a situation that you purchase new RIs and you shut down the RIs you, yeah, that you had reservations for, especially if you're like running multi-account organization where you're purchasing RIs all around the organization and not just at the master account. So there are very many reasons that I can make a valid case that why buying three-year RIs with all upfront is a very bad idea, even if you get the most of the discount. Because if you lose like two months or three months from the usable life cycle of those instance types, either doing a decision or just uh, not knowing that uh, they still existed, you will lose the benefit in the end. Cool. So it sounds like we're all going to be spending some time diving deep into the savings plans and seeing what we can get out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's I feel it's a great tool and a, a, like my assumption from that is that it makes it a lot easier for also small consumers to get some kind of benefits in the long term not diving too deeply about that what I'm going to do with my environment in next one year or next three years. Let's move on to another topic. So Last week, um, the AWS CLI version 2 was released, and that had um, support following into through um, AWS SSL. And Ben, I understand you've uh, played around with that and looked into how it all works? Yeah, I've, uh, I've been looking at that for, for quite some time already. Uh, well, the version 2 of the CLI um, in particular, not the SSO one. Um, to be clear, it's, um, it's still a beta release. Um, so you may not want to uh, build your best scripts around it yet. 
but it's really nice that that we can see where it's going and what and the what's already available because they they started at it i think before last reinvent even and there are some some really cool new features in it and uh, there are some extra wizards in there uh, that make it easier to set up for example um your configuration or the roles you would need uh, to log into your AWS account. Uh, they also added a new high-level command uh, for DynoDB, which works uh, the same as the S3 command, where instead of uh, you have um, in the CLI you have two different kinds of S3 commands. You have the S3 API ones, which are um, exactly the things you use with the SDK uh, with the pure uh, API, but you also have the S3 commands with which have like copy and move and things like that. And it makes it easier um, to do common things. And they added that for DynoDB, where it's, it's a lot easier now to add uh, objects into a table. Uh, but the big um, new uh, change for me uh, uh, in particular is the SSO one, because um, up until uh, the start of this week, when you wanted to use uh, AWS SSO with the CLI, you had to log in into the, into the browser, uh, go to the SSO page and then copy uh, the command to insert the AWS credentials into your uh, shell environment, uh, which was really tedious, especially if you, have to, if you have to switch between different accounts a lot. And now they uh, built uh, an integration that makes it possible to set up SSO with the, uh, with the CLI. So you, uh, you log into SSO, uh, set up that, uh, that link between the two, and then you can save that in your profile and you can um, uh, use that directly with the CLI, so you don't have to uh, copy-paste anything anymore, uh, which is really cool. Um, and it, it will save us a, a lot of time, I think, uh, working with the CLI, especially if you're working with a large organization or if you're uh, starting uh, with things like Control Tower or, or uh, the AWS Landing Zone, which, will, uh, which integrates with SSO by default. Uh, it's really easy now to actually uh, use that also on the CLI and not only in the browser. There are still some things that I would like for it to improve upon. Uh, for example, right now it's uh, only usable with the CLI, so it doesn't uh, export those environment variables uh, inside your environment or inside of your shell. It just uh, keeps them for use uh, with the CLI. But all the, uh, the APIs it uh, calls behind the scenes are, are all publicly available. So I'm pretty sure that there will be a tool somewhere uh, pretty soon that does the same thing that the CLI does, but that uh, exposes those to your shell environment directly so you can run your own scripts, uh, even if they are, for example, written in Python or in another programming language. So um, I use SSL a lot, and when I saw this, I was immediately very happy because this was something I've been waiting for. Uh, and as you've actually played around with it, um, how easy is it to switch between accounts? It, it's seamless. Uh, well, in, in that sense that you have to set up it once uh, and it saves that. So the for SSO to go to a different account, you need to know uh, three things. You need to know your SSO endpoint, your um, uh, the role or the execution permissions that you want to use and the account you want to go to. Uh, those three get saved in your uh, CLI uh, configuration file uh, under, under a profile where you can choose a name yourself. So you have to set that, set, up, set that up once for each account. And after that, you can just uh, do dash dash profile at the profile you set up and then reuse it every time for every account. And you only need to log in once. So um, it saves the SSO credentials uh, locally 
so you don't have to um, approve it every time you switch accounts. So you go to different accounts, um, but the um, you only have to log in once. Yeah, definitely. This is like interesting uh, announcement, especially because I can like probably see the road going from here. That as as far as I know, that the the SSO is using SAML as uh, kind of doing doing the integration between the 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 user repository and uh, the CLI. So I don't know about you guys, but at least uh, for our market, most of the big customers are using Azure AD as the the federated identity pool for AWS environments. And as I'm sure that a lot of people are aware, like using CLI with those uh, Azure AD SAML federated identities, uh, it's a bit of a hack how you how you do it from the command line so i don't i don't know if this uh, would point in the direction that we can actually start using this also for other saml uh, idps as not only the sso or what do you think um at this moment it's not there yet uh, because it's used uh, the, the communication between um, the cli and uh, the abs apis is based on openid connect uh, so it, it's not directly usable in any case, uh, but I hope that uh, at some point in the future, SSO, instead of only being able to federate with an Active Directory, will also be able to federate with anything that, that uh, talks SAML. And I think that would be a way to approach that, where you can uh, integrate SSO with uh, whatever your um, SAML provider is or your IDP provider is. And then the uh, CLI can still talk with SSO uh, to give you the right credentials for every account you want to use. Yeah, as a side effect, I noticed um, of being able to use SSO to log in is that it now also uh, that the AWS CLI, including version one, has some CLI uh, capabilities now. It all seems to be read-only, unfortunately. Um, because one of my major issues with SSO so far has just been the fact that I have to click everything. And that is not my favorite way of doing things. So hopefully that will get expanded as well. Those commands like um, the SSO OIDC connection that, you've, that gets made in the background, it's all available in the V1 CLI, but I don't think it, act it actually works uh, to log in, as you say, it's not exporting it. it. It does. If you, it's a step or three, four that you have to take. So you have to write your own script to do everything, but you can do exactly the same thing as the version two CLI does uh, in your own script, and then, uh, for example, expose it as, an, as environment variables or save it somewhere on disk uh, for as long as those are valid. Yeah, but it does. Then you have to build your own thing to refresh those credentials, I assume. There's no building way to use it. So it's always your own custom script uh, that has to do something. And it's a step. I think it's three steps that you have to go through. Um, and you can save, uh, you can cache some of those uh, outputs. But uh, yeah, every time uh, your credential expires, you have to start from one of the previous outputs and make sure you get the credential. Yeah, whereas otherwise the credentials just get refreshed. Yeah, exactly. Well, as I mentioned, I for one, I'm definitely looking forward to using this. Even though it's just in preview, it's still 
so much of an improvement over, as you said, just logging in and clicking to copy paste the credentials. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, one one thing to mention about that is that uh, if anyone wants to try the CLI version two, it uh, comes now with actual executable installers as well. So it should be much easier to, for anyone to kind of kick the tires, just download the packages and install it, and you you should be like good to go for the V two version. It, it was a bit of a pain for me in uh, the new version of uh, OS X. Uh, but that may also have been because I've installed it before I upgraded uh, my uh, computer. But it um, it now packages all the libraries that it uses, and I had to prove each library one by one um, to get it uh, executed uh, by my machine uh, because it's not yet a signed installer, I think. Yeah, and there's actually one one point that we discussed with a group of ambassadors a while back that it could be a viable option a lot of people were struggling with the latest osx update breaking a lot of things and one among them being aws cli and some dependencies there so one approach could be containerize a small linux container inside your osx and uh, then you would have kind of a environment to run the aws cli for example there which would be outside of scope for operating system updates. So maybe that is something that we could like touch in as a future subject in more detail. Yeah, definitely. Or if you don't want to uh, deal with installers, uh, everything is also on their GitHub repo in, in, in a branch. So if you um, install from source with pip, uh, then it should just work. Uh, but it will be the same AWS command, so you will have probably will probably re replace uh, your current version one uh, CLI, which is something that that's also not ideal. Yeah, and like having container for a CLI version one and CLI version two kind of keeps those sandboxes neat and tidy, separate from each other. So maybe maybe there's like some yeah it, it, some idea there. I think it's definitely interesting uh, to go into in another time because there are a lot of options to to separate separate those. Uh, like for example, they have now the ex executables, but I, there are also some Python ways that are probably usable or containers. Uh, so there are a lot of different approaches to go there. I think. Okay, but I think that that is the time that we have today for today's topics, and uh, we are planning on having also one more episode before the reinvent to cover some topics regarding that event and a few more that we already have on our list and uh, yeah we welcome everyone to join us again thank you both for um, joining me here today and thank you everybody for listening yeah it's very nice talking to you both uh, see you next time this has been an episode of ambassador lounge podcast thank you for listening